branded the hogsheads of the cast with uh, messages of damnation that glowed with an unholy light. It's this eclectic mix of occult and righteous. And wine was really the drink of choice in the Bible to show gratitude to God. Jesus was accused um, of being a drunkard and a glutton. Is it damnation or just good booze? We're going to find out after this quick word. This is Richard Taplin, host of Black and Studios, The Black Box. Join myself and Elijah Bailey as we discover new ways to self-improve ourselves. Also, we interview podcasters and local entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Black and Studios, and also come to our website, blackandstudios.com. You can find all the podcasts that record here. And remember, it's Blackin. The provocative street artist Banksy said, Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Hey guys, this is Malia Christie of Shaded and Faded Studio. I specialize in mixed media, abstract, and figure painting. If you enjoy the beautiful, the bizarre, and you want to rock your artistic sensibilities, I invite you to check out my work. You can find me at www.malia-christie.com and on Instagram and Facebook, search Shaded and Faded Studio. everyone, welcome to another episode of Make It A Double. My name is Mike Stojic, and this is the podcast that talks booze, spirits, history, mixology, and the people and stories that make it great. On today's show, we'll ask the question, is it damnation or just good booze? Regardless of your religious or spiritual personal beliefs, we know that sometimes religion and alcohol do not mix well, and other times, it's part of the culture. In this episode, we explore alcohol and Christianity with my friend Paul Adams, who's a Christian philosopher. We also meet Ian Hunter and Jesse Brenneman of the Deacon Giles Distillery in Salem, Massachusetts. A couple of super cool guys making gin and rum while preserving the history of Deacon Giles, a man accused of hiring demons to work in his distillery in the early to mid-1800s. We got an interesting show for you today. I think you're really going to like it. So grab your favorite drink, sit on back, and uh, and enjoy. Cheers. All right. Uh, my name is Paul Adams, and um, a little bit about me. I spent 20 years and eight days in the Air Force and retired uh, many years ago, about 21 years ago now. Spent time um, playing the guitar in the Air Force band, traveled all over and had a good time doing that. Really enjoyed myself. And um, then I, when I finished the Air Force, I finished uh, grad school in philosophy of religion. I had the opportunity to teach for about five years. I taught philosophy, world religions, logic, 
medical ethics, and so forth and so on, philosophy of religion. Really enjoyed that a lot. And today we're going to talk about wine and religion. And but, religion. but there's something else you do, Paul, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about it. That's your um, blog Oh, yeah, and your yeah. website, if you could, Thank just you. kind of talk a little bit about that and, <laughs> yes. and tell us how we can learn more. Yeah, you know, a lot of my friends and, and former uh, professors and so forth were, were spending time blogging, and um, I didn't see much value in it until I stopped teaching. Then I realized I needed uh, a student, so I decided that my blog would be my surrogate student. So um, <laughs> it helps me um, continue with writing because I do love to write. And I love to read. And so uh, basically my blog uh, captures a lot of my um, academic interests as well as my reading interests. And uh, I write lots of book reviews on it and uh, various sundry topics. Um, my religious persuasion is Christianity. And so uh, my blog is entitled inchristus.com. That's I-N-C-H-R-I-S-T-U-S. Dot com. Certainly for anyone listening, um, check out Paul's website in Christus.com. But for now, for our talk, Paul, um, you mentioned to me that you had just finished reading a book, and I think you're going to write on on it as well, but it had to do with this very subject about uh, wine and religion. The book is by a lady named Gisela Kreglinger. Uh, she grew up in a winery in Franconia, Germany, and her family has been crafting wine for many generations. She holds a Ph.D. in historical theology from the University of St. Andrews, which, by the way, is a premier school of theology and New Testament studies. And she's taught Christian spirituality for a number of years uh, before turning to writing full time. And the book is entitled The Spirituality of wine. And the title fascinated me, and the subject matter fascinated me. So uh, I picked it up, read it, and uh, so most of my uh, discussion today will be from uh, her findings, which are uh, really quite profound. Uh, the book is just full of, of really uh, fascinating information, which I hope to be able to highlight. Some of the things that she points out is uh, regarding wine in the Bible. It's interesting that wine is referred to practically in every book of the Bible. When it is referred to, it's referred to as in a very favorable light. So, for example, uh, right after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, Noah plants a vineyard. Uh, Abraham samples wine in Canaan, Genesis chapter 14. Jacob, also in Genesis, serves wine to his father Isaac while seeking a blessing from him. The promised land was renowned for its lushed vines uh, that Israel was about to inherit, uh, also known as Canaan. Uh, there were celebrations and rituals uh, that included wine repeatedly, wedding feasts, which we'll talk about more in a moment, uh, included wine. And, of course, the annual Passover meal uh, that the Jewish um, uh, members uh, partake of each year consists of four cups of wine that they all drank uh, throughout the uh, evening as they participated in the annual Passover meal. And wine was really the drink of choice in the Bible to show gratitude to God for his provision. Uh, wine being a product of the earth and the fruit of the earth, it was um, used as, uh, you know, giving back to God from the earth to show how much they appreciated his provision for them. 
Uh, It was also referred to in the Bible medicinally. Uh, Proverbs advises that we should give wine to the downcast, Proverbs 31, 6, and 7. Paul, uh, in the New Testament, prescribes wine for stomach issues. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, to not only drink water, but also take a little wine for your stomach. So apparently Timothy had stomach concerns. Uh, Jesus illustrates that wine was used uh, in the Good Samaritan story to cleanse the wounds of the Samaritan, or excuse me, the uh, the man who was uh, beaten up. And the Good Samaritan, of course, goes and, and helps him. Part of helping him included cleaning his wounds with wine. Uh, Proverbs, or Psalm 104 says that wine gladdens the heart and allows us to experience God as a lavish giver. Uh, once again, uh, showing how much we appreciate what God has given to us. I mean, it sounds like an awful lot of good things <laughs> for, like th- that, um, that I suppose any Christian would be maybe for drinking wine. Why do you suppose then that there are certain denominations who are just yeah. so against it, especially in the, um, the, the Bible Belt area where we're at in the, in the South? Um, where it's almost it's all hellfire and brimstone and alcohol is the devil. How yeah. how did that happen? If that's a very interesting uh, and and not a simple answer, mm-hmm. uh, it. But I will say um, that uh, that's a recent development. Uh, we find in history that Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers of the second century, argued that wine nourishes us by the Eucharist, and he insisted on it being used in the Eucharist. So did Clement of Alexandria, Cyprian, Chrysostom, Augustine, uh, St. Martin of Tours, uh, after whom uh, Martin Luther was named, and um, he's known as the patron saint of wine, St. Martin of Tours, St. Benedict, and uh, the Benedictine tradition eventually um, owned all the famous vineyards that are now uh, in France. And uh, it was thanks to the Benedictine monks, um, France is known for its wine. Hmm. So uh, this um, development about why wine and alcohol is evil really has more to do with the history of uh, temperance movement and the prohibition. And so uh, that gets, gets us well into the, uh, the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, uh, but particularly in the uh, uh, early 20th century with the prohibition. It seems that this may be more about trying to find a way to control people. Well, it does. Yeah, I think it has something to do mm-hmm. with control. Uh, it also has to do with what many would argue, and I would be in this camp, that uh, it's, it's a rather uh, wooden and literal understanding of uh, certain texts in the Bible. Um, for example, the Bible says, do not get drunk with wine, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. However, it's not prohibiting the drinking of wine. What's the prohibition there is the drunkenness of mm-hmm. wine. So being drunk is what is prohibited in the Bible, not the actual drinking itself. But unfortunately, the line became very thin between drinking and getting drunk. So it comes from a misunderstanding, and uh, I think, of what the Bible is, is intending to say. It's interesting that it was, it was Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Bunyan, author of The Pilgrim's Progress, who argued that, you know, wine is a gift from God and it should be taken. In fact, John Calvin, uh, the, uh, some might argue the, um, the father of the Protestant movement after, of course, Martin Luther, who started it. John Calvin was paid in wine for his sermons and teaching as much as 250 gallons a year. Wow. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Go figure. Martin Luther's <laughs> wife was a famous beer and garden 
uh, person. She had a beautiful garden, and she also made beer. And Martin Luther composed the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, while enjoying a glass of Rhine wine. I like it. Imagine that. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so getting back to your question, though, the temperance movement, which began somewhere in uh, the mid-1820s, uh, was not aimed so much at wine or beer, but it was aimed at the unbridled use of distilled spirits. In 1792 in America, there were approximately 2,579 distilleries. And by 1810, there were more than 14,000 distilleries. Uh, that has to, had to do mainly with the fact that on the East Coast, the, the, the wine grapevine, wine grapevine, the grapevine was um, discovered as early as 1524. It was recorded that there were uh, mm -hmm. uh, vines with grapes on them in, in uh, North Carolina, of all places, in 1524. But uh, it turns out that uh, no one was able to produce wine from those grapes. And when they tried to plant some, um, some of the stock from Europe over here on the East Coast, that it didn't take because of the intense humidity and the heat, and primarily because of a mite known as uh, phylloxera. But... Um, the temperance movement, once again, started in the mid-1820s, and it was not aimed at wine or beer. It was aimed at distilled spirits. The ratification of the 18th Amendment in, on January 16, 1919, uh, prohibited the production, the consumption, the importation, and the exportation of all intoxicating liquors, um, and that devastated the viticulture possibilities for American wine. Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, prohibition, uh, which was uh, between the years 1920 and 1933, uh, for those 14 years, it resulted in production of cheap distilled spirits, which increased drunkenness and uh, became the drink of choice in the lower classes uh, because wine was essentially not available, uh, nor was beer. And the corresponding rise in drunkenness, along with the rise in the politically dominant fundamentalist Christian groups, helped shape culture's understanding of the use of all alcohol beverages. These forces, combined with um, the rise in individualism and the uh, production of uh, the Industrial Revolution, um, allowed us to, um, to think that, well, we were... Um, uh, quite the individualist, and um, consequently, grape juice was replaced wine in the Holy Eucharist, and instead of drinking from one cup as a corporate uh, communal experience, uh, these individual cups were passed around with grape juice in it, which is what most Protestant Baptistic churches do today. People partake of the uh, blood of the covenant, so to speak, uh, as uh, grape juice in these individual cups. The grape juice and the wine for the blood of Christ. Why, why is it that we associate or we symbolize drinking wine or the grape juice with that? And why is that important? Okay. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, first of all, there's a backstory to that that's important um, that Christians have uh, come to understand because Christianity really, it could be argued, is the consummation of Judaism in many respects. Uh, so uh, there's a backstory in Judaism that we need to, to be aware of. 
in order to appreciate the sacramental nature of the Holy Eucharist, also known as wine and crackers, uh, it is important <laughs> to, uh, to, to know about this backstory. Passover is the commemoration and celebration of Israel's deliverance from slavery to Egypt and their freedom as a nation. In the tenth and worst of the plagues on Egypt, uh, God instructed the Israelites to mark the doorpost of their homes with the blood of a slaughtered lamb and upon seeing this, the Spirit of the Lord knew to pass over the firstborn in these homes. This led to Pharaoh's release of the Israelite slaves and to their subsequent freedom. The Passover event was to be celebrated annually by the whole community as a common and unifying experience for the nation. And Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples in Luke chapter 22. And so when he offers up uh, this cup of wine uh, for everyone to partake of, uh, he re-envisions it and gives it new meaning. Uh, and he suggests that the wine is symbolic of his blood, which he is about to shed uh, as, a, um, as a, a, a death for the sins of the world. And so the wine is to be um, partaken as a, a memorial to help us recall the, uh, the price that Israel had to pay uh, for, um, being, uh, for coming out of slavery and uh, the price that we pay for coming out of slavery and what Christ had done for us. Um, so that's basically how it got connected is through the Passover meal. Okay. And, so, and, and um, why wine and not something else? Wine was um, a product of the, of the earth. Uh, it was um, seen as a cel- celebratory uh, sustenance. Uh, it's, it was a, uh, a means of uh, us celebrating uh, the good things that God gives us, especially the nutrients that we get from the earth to feed us, to sustain us. So wine came to be known as as having life in it symbolically, just as blood came to be known as having life in it. Um, God prohibits the drinking of blood uh, in Genesis chapter 9. He says you may eat uh, anything you choose, uh, but just don't drink the blood from the animal because the blood was symbolic of having life in it. And if you think about it, if you drain the blood out of something living, it has no more life. That's mm-hmm. why we, uh, we say metaphorically that when he died, uh, his blood was shed, or the shedding of blood is symbolic of death. So life uh, was was seen in wine because life was seen in blood, and blood and wine were uh, to be metaphorically illustrate life. Whoa, is that really the blood of Christ? Yes. Man, that guy must have been wasted 24 hours a day, eh? So earlier we talked about how some Christians think alcohol is evil, but what about the Christians that don't feel that way? How do the different denominations approach their philosophical view of partaking in the Holy Eucharist or the Holy Communion or the wine and crackers? Well, it's interesting that um, in terms of different understandings of Holy Eucharist, in terms of um, Christian denominations, Catholicism uh, has a different take on the wine than Lutherans, Baptists, and uh, 
Presbyterians cool. and, and so forth. Uh, Catholicism believes in a, a view called transubstantiation, which basically says this, that the substance of the bread and the wine are miraculously transformed into the actual substance of Christ's body and Christ's blood. They are no longer bread and wine. They are his body. They, it is his blood. That is the Catholic view. Uh, the Lutheran view, uh, and this comes directly from Martin Luther, uh, kind of uh, had an interesting twist on it. Uh, it's called consubstantiation. And that basically says that Christ's body and blood come to be present in, with, and under the form of the bread and the wine, which thus become more than bread and wine, but not less. So the presence of Christ is in, with, and under the elements, the bread and the wine, but is not itself the elements. Mm -hmm. So that's the Lutheran view. The Baptist view, uh, which came from Jurich Zwingli, who is a contemporary of John Calvin's, uh, is the memorial view. Uh, basically, this view holds that the, the body and the blood of Christ is not physically present anywhere near or in the elements, because after all, Christ rose from the dead, and he's somewhere else. <laughs> he's not here, sorry. Uh, and so the elements are merely a memorial. They're symbolic only, in the same way that the American flag is symbolic of America, but is not itself America. Right. It's merely a symbol of it. So that's the Baptist or memorial view. Uh, the Reformed view is after John Calvin uh, appeals to mystery and holds that though the bread and the wine remain unchanged, Christ through the Holy Spirit grants worshipers true enjoyment of his personal presence by drawing them into fellowship with him in heaven in a way that is glorious and very real, though it's indescribable and mysterious. So the presence of Christ is there in the elements, but is not itself the elements, similar to the Lutheran view, um, but not quite. Hmm. So that's the uh, Calvinist view, also known as the Presbyterian view, and the Anglican view. The Anglicans basically maintain that um, Christ is present um, in the terms of uh, there's a past reference to his death, which helps us recall the price of salvation. Christ is present uh, with us now uh, in terms of our corporate feeding on, on the uh, one cup. We do, it, uh, we do not have individual cups as Anglicans. We share in one cup because it connects us to one another and helps us recall the importance of how we treat one another matters. Uh, it also has a future reference because Christ said when he partook of the um, Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26, Christ says, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine again until I come again in my kingdom. So Christ will drink wine with us in the future. And it's not grape juice. It's wine. <laughs> so despite what others might suggest, it's wine. All right, Paul, one more thing before I let you go, and we meet up with Jesse and Ian in the distillery. Tell us about the time that Jesus turned water into wine. There were six clay jars that Jesus instructed the workers at this wedding to 
fill with water to the brim. And when John records this in John chapter 2 in his gospel, he's very meticulous about the details. The jars were to be filled with, to the brim, and there were six of them. Now, uh, it's well known in Jewish uh, ceremonies that these jars were used for uh, purification rites. And uh, it required a lot of water. And uh, on average, each jar uh, held between 20 and 30 gallons of water. And again, this is recorded in John chapter 2, because John annotates that. And so Jesus instructed uh, the workers to take six jars, each of which contained 20 to 30 gallons, and fill them to the brim. And then when, the, when the, uh, the liquid was served to the master of the ceremony, he marveled at how good the wine was that came from that water that was turned to wine. Hmm. And so that's a lot of wine, if you think about it. Yeah, six, six at a, even if it just had 20 gallons, is 120 gallons. 120 plus gallons of wine. Now, in all fairness... It's a good time, Paul. Indeed. That, in we- all fairness, <laughs> when we go to drink, we should do it all in one sitting. You uh-huh. know, We go out for an evening, and we drink, and we're done, and we go to work the next day. But in, in a Jewish wedding, and this is true of weddings today, we go, we have the wedding, two hours later, we're done. But um, a Jewish wedding took, uh, on average, about seven days, and every day was a celebration. Wow. Incidentally, uh, Hindu weddings are still pretty much the same. They used to be two weeks, but now Hindu weddings, on average, are three to four, up to five, six, or seven days. So, And also, it's interesting that Jesus was accused um, of being a drunkard and a glutton. I didn't know that. Yes, he sure was. Um, I'd like to know more about that, if you don't mind. Yep, he sure was. Uh, It turns out that um, most likely um, he he drank wine. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been accused of that. (laughs) So, yeah, the Pharisees accused him of being a drunkard and a a glutton. Not just drank wine, but it sounds like he drank too much wine. (laughs) And he also understood the basis of wine fermentation, which is why we can't get grape juice out of all the texts in the New Testament Mm -hmm. that use the word wine. You just can't get it because Jesus understood the fermentation process because in Luke chapter 5, verses 37 to 39, uh, your readers can go or your listeners can go look it up. Uh, Jesus uh, talked about uh, pouring new wine into old wineskins and what, what would happen to them. It would ruin the wineskins. They would hmm. burst. Uh, because they couldn't withstand the fermentation process that was still going on in the new wine. And you'd ruin both the wine and the wineskins. Jesus says, instead, the old wine is much better. And, of course, he's using that as an illustration to teach a spiritual principle. I'll leave it to your readers to glean what that is, uh-huh. because the purpose of this podcast is not to teach the spiritual principles. But my point <laughs> is that uh, he understood the basics of wine fermentation because he used it as an illustration. So he was a drunkard at least being accused of being a drunkard. (laughs) And uh, he turned about 120 gallons of water or more into wine. He also promised to drink wine again when he comes in his kingdom. All right, friends. Earlier we talked a little about how some of the Christian community looked poorly on our beloved spirits. While we're traveling to Salem, Massachusetts to meet a couple of distillers who are flying their flag in defiance and keeping the legend of Deacon Giles and his demon distillery workers alive through their rum and gin. The story of Deacon Giles is an incredible one in a town typically associated with witches. It was created by a firebrand minister, George Cheever of Salem in 1835 to persuade the citizens that alcohol is evil and support the temperance movement. 
You're not going to want to miss this. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Mixtape Podcast is a music show hosted by Forty and Bolts, just a couple of regular dudes who are super unqualified to talk about this stuff. Seriously, I can't even stress to you how unqualified they are, but they do it anyway, and it's always a good time. Some of the episodes are about new music, unknown music, while other ones kind of revisit some of our favorites of all time. So tune in every other Tuesday or check out the website at themixtapepodcast.com. take your business online, whether it's to inform and educate or to sell your products and merchandise, take your Massive Motives with you. Massive Motives is the Carolina's most trusted web design outfit with clients from New York to California. Our services include custom web design, hosting, domain names, photography, social media workshops, and so much more. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google Plus, or head on over to our website, MassiveMotives.com. All right, listeners, let's get back to the show. So my name is Jesse Brenneman, co-founder of Deacon Giles Distillery here in Salem, Massachusetts. And uh, my name is Ian Hunter. I'm the other co-founder of Deacon Giles Distillery. And We interrupt Jesse and Ian to inform you that this interview was actually recorded a little over a year ago from the time this episode was first published. Jesse and Ian just celebrated their one-year anniversary as Deacon Giles Distillery. Congratulations, fellas. And yes, sometimes it takes Mike longer than it should to edit shows, but don't hate. Jesus loved wine, and wine gets better with age, and we think so did this podcast. Now, back to Jesse and Ian. I came across the story of Deacon Giles about a decade ago when, uh, when I, too, was starting to think about uh, opening a, a brewery. But the, the story kind of stuck with me, and you know, when, it, when the time came back around to start thinking about what, what the next stage in my life was going to look like, the, uh, the story came back to me. It was actually, uh, I, was, I was sitting on the beach in Bermuda with my wife and turned to her and said, do you remember that story I came across? Well, what if, what if we open a distillery in Salem? Just kind of took off from there. She, uh, she immediately said yes, uh, <laughs> which, which to, her, to her credit, and, uh, and, and then I started thinking, you know, well, who, who can I get to, to help me do this? Because I know I can't do it on my own. And, uh, and Jesse was definitely on the short list of those people. So it was, uh, it was, it was a, a, it's been a great pleasure to, uh, to work with him for the last two and a half years on, on this and, and to uh, finally see our dream come to fulfillment here. Yeah, no kidding. And just recently, too, yesterday. Yeah, we, we opened yesterday, <laughs> yes. So. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's been a mad dash to the finish for sure. Yeah, that's but, awesome. Uh, we, we, uh, we opened the doors yesterday, and, and uh, the folks here in town, uh, the restaurant owners and, and, uh, and, and liquor stores, have been, uh, have been really phenomenal in taking us on board, and the response has been really good. So. Yeah, it's great. So you're a couple of guys with brewing backgrounds. How did you become distillers, especially since the government frowns on hobby distilling, um, which, of course, everyone can go back to episode one of the Make It a Double podcast and learn all about on the show entitled Moonshine, but seriously... How did this all come about? I'm guessing practicing at home? No, of course not. We, we didn't distill anything until we had a license. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll have to check with our lawyer before we answer that. <laughs> you know, going, going back to, to the kind of the origin of the business plan for me was, um, you know, I'd, I'd been in, brew, in the brewing industry, but I, 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 you're, you're absolutely right with the, the, the phenomenal growth that craft brewing has seen. Uh, it's starting to get a, a bit crowded in the field, mm-hmm. so... Um, 
starting to reflect on that is when I thought about distilling. Well, distilling is just starting to kind of come into its own again. And then tie that in with, with the origin story of Deacon Giles and, uh, and you know, my, my love of my home here in Salem. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it all just kind of fit together that way. We chose to focus on um, gin and rum um, because they were kind of categories that we thought were underserved. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw that there was probably a pretty good opportunity there to educate some people that, hey, you know, gin doesn't always have to be a London dry you know, and rum doesn't always have to be uh, Puerto Rican light rum. You know, you can get some good flavors and some delicious profiles in, in, these, in these spirits that, you know, not a lot of people are, are willing to approach yet. We, we took the approach of, uh, you know, n- number one, we're, it's got to be authentic. And so we, you know, taking, diving into the, the history, uh, especially here in New England, it was, a, it was a huge rum producing area back in the 1800s you know, part of the Triangle of Trade, et cetera, et cetera. As we started looking into that, our first focus was, well, let's make what we think is a true New England-style rum, and that means that we're going to make it with 100% molasses. So that's where the start is for us, um, and, and I think that's really a distinctive character. Uh, we're, not, we're not adding sugar or, or cane juice. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a little harder doing it with straight rum, but it, it comes out with, a, a, we think, a, a much more distinctive product. So yeah, certainly using, um, you know, we're using a good, a good percentage of blackstrap in our, in our wash. And uh, a lot of the characteristics of that, you know, blackstrap molasses is a deep, heavy, you know, fuel oil kind of molasses. It's just, it's got, and it's got this, this flavor profile in this nose that, that um, is, is just incredibly intense. And there's a lot of good things in there. So we wanted to make sure that that, that carried over into the final product, the, the vanillas and, and the burnt sugars. And, and you know, there's sometimes there's some pepper and some banana and a, a certain minerality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was really critical to make sure that, that those kind of things carried over into the final product. So we did have something that was a little more distinct. One of the reasons we chose rum as well, you know, it was, it was straight out of the story of Deacon Giles. Deacon Giles was a rum distiller here in Salem, fictitious rum distiller here in Salem, but uh, he made rum, shipped it out to the trade, and um, we thought it was only appropriate that we did that too. You know, it's got to be pretty tough coming up with the different flavor traits and profiles in your rum and gin. How did you guys work that out and, and build on your recipe? Uh-huh. Without, without, a lot without, of experimentation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, take for example our, our, our uh, go off the subject of rum slightly, but um, you know, take the, the example of our gin. It, it, we took the same approach to that. It's okay. We it, we want to do we want to educate people that there are different options out there. Um, we need to do something distinct. Um, and then you know, f- for me, recognizing the the historical aspects of of gin and of the area that we're in. The, the, the town of Salem and, and uh, you know, and, and New England in general. We wanted, to, uh, we wanted to kind of include some of that history in there. So picking the different botanicals that we used, um, deciding what, what the base of the, of, of the gin was going was gonna to start with. Um, we do a, an all malt base, uh, mostly barley with a little bit of rye in there. And then a, a couple of the really distinct botanicals that we use are, are mace and rose hips. The mace is the outer covering of the nutmeg, and mace was actually the first spice to be imported to Salem from the East Indies. Oh, no kidding. So um, that, was one, that was one way we thought uh, would, would play well and, uh, and has a great story behind it. Sure. And then uh, the rose hips, of course, come you know, from Beach Rose. This is a seaside community. Um, so that's kind of why we focused on, on, uh, on including those two and then, uh, and then finding the other botanicals that, that really rounded out the spirit and made it 
um, complex in its parts, but uh, well-rounded as a as a whole. You know, well, certainly a, uh, we certainly owe a shout out to a lot of our friends and family for. Uh, you know, trying out our test batches early on that, that, uh, we, that, that we, we didn't do without a license. Yeah, we thought we're great, but we're quickly knocked off our pedestal. You know, <laughs> well, that's awesome. How I mean, that must have been just a lot of fun. The the whole experimentation and and trying to get the recipes right and building up. Oh yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was it was it was a long, interesting journey that was incredibly fun, um, especially being able to. But share it with our friends and family as we were going along and, and get that honest feedback. It was pretty intense at times. We, we, we thought, like I said, we thought we'd had something great and, and you know, <laughs> one of our wives would be like, you know what, this is good, but you, I just can't handle this much mace or I just can't handle, you know, this much citrus. You know, we have to go back and retool it and it's, it's not a quick process to do. So it's... Yeah, and, and, and the, the biggest challenge we found was as each, each time we, we did an iteration of it, you would end up uh, so you know okay there's there's too much there's there's too much orange peel so you cut back the orange peel thinking okay that's going to solve it and but the way the botanicals play together in the gin you do that and something else all immediately pops out or falls away so it was it was a lot of back and forth we spent about 2 years developing the recipe so how did you know you finally had the recipe figured out we were really uh, able to kind of continue to replicate and, and, and produce. So it gave us some confidence that we had, we had finally dialed it in. Uh, this was, of course, on, a, on our, our, our baby 10-gallon test still. <laughs> so then taking that and scaling it up to, to our, our full-size scale still was, um, was the next challenge. Sure. And, and uh, that's really, it, you know, uh, where, where Jesse's experience and knowledge really came in yeah you know I, craft has always been, in my mind been the convergence of the the art and the science right. you know and yeah I, I would give it a 25 75 especially when you're running the still each still um depending on its design its shape even just the thickness of of the metal that's used it has its own kind of characteristics that that it imparts in a finished spirit so you know aside from just trying to figure out how to multiply a batch up from 10 gallons to three, 300 mm -hmm. gallons. You know, it, I had to learn how to, how this, our new particular still was going to produce those flavors again. You know, did I need to run it harder? Did I need to run it softer? Did, you know, did I need to use more plates? Did I need to open up the plates? That kind of thing. It sounds like gin is a heck of a lot harder to make than rum. Is it, am I right in saying that or is it or maybe about the same? Because with all the botanicals and the, and the complexity of the recipe, it just sounds like it's way more difficult to produce gin than rum. It was certainly much more difficult to design it with all, mm -hmm. all the botanicals that we were using. Um, as, as far as the production process, it's, it's really... About the same. Once, once you get it nailed down, it's about the same. You know, okay. Seven to ten days for us. Yeah. So you're brand new on the shelves for the first time yesterday. How did that all go? This must have been a great feeling. I was I was down at uh, at the liquor store yesterday doing a tasting in the afternoon, and a lot of people. Oh, oh, Jen, very cool. You're in Salem. How long have you been open? Today's our first day. <laughs> what? <laughs> we bottled on Wednesday. Uh, we we packed the cases on Thursday, and they they went out to to the to the bars and and uh, and liquor stores yesterday. So it, it was. Uh, it's been a whirlwind. It's <laughs> awesome. So you're named after this incredible story of a fictitious character created to convince people that alcohol is evil. I think it's great. Tell us the story of Deacon Giles. Deacon Giles was an impious man who distilled rum on the Sabbath and 
paid his workers in liquor and sold Bibles from his counting room. One day after, uh, after a row with the boss, the workers walked off in, in anger and he was left with a shipment of molasses to work up and nobody to do it. And in walks the surly lot of individuals who uh, agreed to work for the, the, the deacon. So he locked him into the distillery for the night. And uh, when he came back in the morning, the distillery was still locked, but the, uh, the, 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 the workers had disappeared. But they'd done more in a night than he could do in three weeks. Um, and this went on a couple of times. Um, and it turns out they were demons from hell that had come to play a trick on the old deacon, and they branded the hogsheads of the casks with uh, messages of damnation that glowed with an unholy light that tap- when tapped. So this was, this was written as a temperance tract in 1835 by this firebrand minister here in Salem named uh, George Cheever. Um, he went on to, uh, to be a leader in the temperance movement and, and, uh, and also the abolitionist movement. Um, but it was, it was clear to the residents of Salem that this was a, a thinly veiled lambasting of a popular local Unitarian deacon named John Stone, who also happened to own a rum distillery in downtown Salem. I think this, this story was kind of the jumping off point for us because it speaks so much to I, what I think Salem is. It's, um, it's this eclectic mix of, uh, you know, of uh, occult and righteous and you know, good and evil. And who's right and who's wrong is really a matter of interpretation in this story. The, the, the one perspective is, is the, you know, the, the, the evils of alcohol and, and the temperance piece. Uh, on the other hand, you've, you've got an honest businessman just trying to run his family trade. And I, and I think that still kind of plays to what Salem is today. So uh, it, it, great imagery, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a rich story. And, uh, and then, you know, the, the artwork that accompanied the story that we've got on the wall was, were all pieces that we could use to, to start with. I think that's about it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, it's fun, too, because it, 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 it's such a tangible story. But aside from that, you know, it, it, there's so much history here in Salem besides the witches that we're known for. You know, that was, that was a small piece of what otherwise is it's a massive amount of, of very very deep history. Now, at one time, Salem was larger than Boston. It used to be the largest port on, uh, in the Americas. And um, there was so much that happened here, uh, and this was just a small piece of it. And we're glad to pull something out that isn't just the witch history of Salem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's good to, I mean, uh, obviously, the, uh, we're, we're, we benefit from, from that piece of, of, <laughs> of Salem history by, by the natural draw of, of people to come to Salem. But, you know, it's, it's when, when I moved here, almost 15 years ago, you know, obviously I knew the witch thing, but once I was here, I learned about all these other aspects, you know, the, the, the maritime history, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of invention and creation happened here. You know, Parker Brothers was based here for, for many years, so Monopoly used to have Salem Mass stamped on it. You know, so, a lo- so many other things happen in Salem, and, and that's what we're trying to, uh, to, to play on a little bit. Speaking of, of distilling, it was in the, in the 18... 30s to 50s, there were there were actually as many as seven rum distilleries in the city of Salem. Hmm. Uh, there were there were more than 70 in the in the city in the state of Massachusetts. By the 1890s, they were all gone. So it's really kind of taking this story, reviving the history, and trying to add our own chapter to it. I love your design. I was noticing that on your website, the just different art, and I know some of it's pretty original from. Yep. 18- yeah. 1835. 35, yeah. Um, but then this is really cool, too, what you have on your gin bottle. 
in your rum bottle. Uh, is that? Yeah, here, let me, let me go grab those real quick. Yeah, cool, thanks. I mean, I really think the art is super cool. So is that original art? Did you find an artist to do that? Or is that taken from the... Yeah, so on, on, the, uh, on the liquid damnation rum, the, uh, the, the image is, is directly out of the original woodcut. Um, and uh, we've, we've, we were, we're very fortunate to have found a, a phenomenal graphic designer here in town. Um, and she's been, uh, she's, she's just got a great creative spirit. So she, uh, she kind of, we, we, we gave her a concept. Here's what we'd like to accomplish. Um, you know, we want to use color. We want to, um, we want to use the, uh, we want to use the art we want to use. And, and, and she was just able to kind of take our, our random ideas and, and, and put them into something that I think is just amazing. But, uh, yeah, she pulled, so she pulled that demon out of, out of the original woodcut um, and after we came up with that, we, we realized, okay, the, the, the woodcut imagery is going to be an important part of our brand. Um, so for, for the original gin, we actually had, um, we commissioned a, an artist to give us a, an Adam and Eve woodcut that was in a similar style. Um, so this, that's actually an original piece of art. This one came out of, uh, came out of the, the original woodcut. I think that's such a beautiful label, but to get back to the product that's in the bottle and now haven't had an opportunity to sample your gin, I got to say this could stand alone like in a martini or dare I say neat. You know, the mindset typically is, especially for gin, that it's a main component of a cocktail. It certainly is. It used to be... Um Back before Prohibition, it used to be that most, most spirits were drank neat or maybe, maybe chilled down if they happened to have mm-hmm. some way to cool it off. Um, and then Prohibition hit. And what happened was you had all these rum runners and these moonshiners and these bootleggers producing booze as fast as they could, and they weren't making good stuff. They were making it because they could make a buck. Um, so it ended up in all these gin joints and these speakeasies. In order to make it palatable to the people who were actually still consuming it and wanted to pay for it, they had to figure out how to how to mix it with something so that people would want to actually drink it. And that's where the, the real cocktail um, was, was, was born, was during the 1920s when booze was actually illegal. <laughs> and, so, and so once, once prohibition was you know, thrown out the window, uh, that, that tradition kind of carried on. Um, people learned that they liked to mix their spirits with, with something delicious. Um, I, you know, getting to our spirits, uh, I, I would, I'm very proud to say and very happy to say that I think they could be drank neat or maybe with an ice cube. Absolutely. Um, we went a long way and spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get our spirits as smooth as possible um, so that you could actually enjoy the other flavors that are in it and not be, not be burnt out by the alcohol. We've, we've had more than one person say that um, they would be happy to not mix it. Um, that, that said, you know, Typically, people drink spirits in cocktails. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we, we, a couple of goals that we kind of set up is, okay, th- this has to be able to make, uh, you know, talking of gin, it has to be able to make a, a great martini, and it has to be able to make a great gin and tonic. So, yes, it, it certainly can stand up on its own, and I think we've, we've probably tasted enough of it at this point that, <laughs> that, we're, that we're used to it. Um, but it, but you you know you also have to you have to know your audience and and and, and certainly the cocktail experience is is a, is a big part of that for us. So um, once we kind of file, once we settled in on the recipe, then we started to try and play around with with some of the mixers out there and try and try and figure out what 
you know, what other cordials or bottles that might be on a back bar play well so that we can, we can then go and, and help educate the consumer and the, and the bartender um, and help them hopefully develop some signature cocktails, uh, you know, and, and see how it plays. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun um, as, you know, over the past, especially over the past week as we've been approaching the bars and, and, and had actually samples to provide to them and finally ship them um, some of our gin uh, to watch these, these bartenders and mixologists, like their, their eyes light up because they have something new to work with, something, and I hope that something they think is quality because that, <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of them have, you know, we've approached them and said, hey, look, this is our idea for our, our, our martini or a, a Negroni or something. And they're like, yeah, that's a great idea, but hold on a sec. And they'll, they'll run off and start mixing something up and come back with this just this crazy cocktail that it's absolutely delicious and actually highlights the flavors of our of our gin really well. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did putting it all together. I want to send a special thank you to our guest Paul Adams, our Christian philosopher. Check out his blog at inchristus.com for all of his writings. And also thank you to Ian Hunter and Jesse Brenneman of the Deacon Giles Distillery. If you're anywhere in the Salem, Massachusetts area, you got to check these guys out. They have a really great distillery, tasting room, and they're just all around really great guys to talk to. You can check them out online at www.deacongiles.com. And don't forget to visit Make It A Double Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I post lots of cool photos from my interviews as well as all-around interesting facts about some of your favorite spirits. Well, until next time, cheers. Monk's pursuit of perfection in all aspects of life made them the finest wine growers and producers in the entire world and as a result of their wanting to honor Christ, who is the true vine. And that's another passage, John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches.